Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Anna Zimmerman. I am a neonatologist and mom of three, and I created Mighty Littles and the Mighty Littles Podcast to be able to talk about all things parenting and specifically NICU parenting. Today, I am super happy to welcome Julie Cullen. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and uh, I'm going to have her introduce herself to all of you guys. Welcome, Julie. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Julie Cullen. I'm a social worker out of Massachusetts. I work primarily with kids, teens, and families around a variety of topics, anything from trauma to anxiety and depression. I see a lot of young boys with ADHD and other behavioral disorders. And I am also a mom of two. And I am working through this whole COVID thing and trying to figure it all out along with everybody else. (laughs) Yep, exactly. So why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about your professional background and what you did when you went to school and kind of how your profession evolved over time to be doing what you're Mm -hmm. doing now. Sure. So it's funny, I always say from day one, I knew I was going to work with kids. I loved being around little kids, even as an eight, nine-year-old. I, I wanted to find the babies. And so starting in high school, when I started working at summer camps, um, I was working with a preschool group and just always noticed, you know, over the two or three, four years that I worked there, the kids who had struggled to engage or participate or be a part of what was going on, those were my favorite kids. I had a, I just was able to connect with them and get them back to the group and doing what everybody was doing to understand, you know, this is the task right now. And so pretty quickly that became my role at camp. So that was, that was leading up into college. I went to college at the university of Vermont and I graduated in 99 with a bachelor's degree in psychology and had to figure out what was next. I didn't, I knew I didn't want to teach. I had worked in daycares and things like that. And that wasn't quite the right realm. So I ended up getting a job over the summer at a residential treatment program for elementary school aged kids. And I think at that point, I'm not sure if I even knew prior to that, that those types of places existed. Um, These were kids who had very difficult childhoods. Lots of them were in the foster care system and just had a wide variety of mental health difficulties. I'm not sure until you just mentioned it that I knew places like that existed. (laughs) Um, And that's that's saying something because I went through medical school and residency and, you know, we would see those kids if they had, you know, medical issues. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't I don't think I knew that they had residential places for kids that had been through trauma. I, th- this is the first that I am hearing about that. That's that's wonderful and fascinating. Yes, and and also, uh, you know, I remember thinking too, also kind of scary that there were that many kids that you would need that kind of facility. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there were, and there were several units and several buildings and several programs. <laughs> and I loved it. Um, I loved. I worked on the floor. I worked with the kids doing their daily routines, getting them to school, get, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed it. So I spent a year doing that kind of work. And then I went back to school. I went to Boston University and they had a dual degree program with social work and special education. And I like to do everything the hard way. So (laughs) I went to grad school for three years, but, you know, I knew I wanted to work with kids and the special education piece gave me a real understanding of how kids learn how kids who struggle to learn can learn, 
how to understand testing and assessments to help figure out the best path forward. Uh, along with my education in social work, which was a real broad look at mental health in and of itself, as well as how systems and policies and just the entire the government really impact all of these different matters. Coming out of all of that school, I, I ended up back in residential. <laughs> that became my home for a while. Um, and this time it was with teenage girls. It was a 26 bed facility for teenage girls. <laughs> and I was there for seven years somehow, which is a very long time to be in that kind of setting. But again, it just at the time it was it was where I needed to be. I got you know, I think what I loved about it there was the opportunities and the training. Um, so I was able I was sent to an intensive training on dialectical behavior therapy, which is um, initially it was developed to treat borderline personality disorder in women, but really can be adapted at particularly 16 and 17 year old girls. I mean, they all kind of fit certain profiles anyway, uh, particularly when they've experienced the type of trauma that these kids had experienced. So um, it really fit well. And we, you know, it really, it's cognitive behavioral therapy with a different language and twist essentially and protocols and but I but I had the opportunity to receive that training which was huge and then also a couple of years after I came in um, my program was run by Justice Resource Institute which is a big agency here in Massachusetts and they also acquired the trauma center in Brookline Mass um, and this was led by Bess, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk who is the trauma guru um, he he just know this is what he does this is what he knows and he developed this entire center to study and research only trauma there was a team there that developed a, a treatment program for complex trauma and developmental trauma for kids and they went into all the residentials and really helped us learn this program implement this program live and breathe this program so you know the the i didn't get a, to do the cert certificate program per se, but the education I got in understanding development and the way that things impact us as young kids and the way that that plays out as we get older, I, there's, there's, I couldn't have gotten that experience anywhere else. Right. So when you say trauma, can you mm -hmm. kind of elaborate a little bit on what you mean by mm -hmm. trauma? Because I think there's all sorts of different traumas that can happen. There's physical trauma, there's medical trauma, there's emotional trauma. So when you're talking about these residential programs and mm -hmm. dealing with trauma, define mm -hmm. that trauma for us a little bit better. So I think often, like you said, when we think of trauma, we think of specific events, um, a car accident, um, abuse, those kinds of things. Developmental or complex trauma is talking more about... Um, the way that chaotic environments affect us as we develop in early childhood. Um, there are two real key ingredients in trauma, whether you're talking about this type of trauma or a specific traumatic event. And the two key ingredients are really that the situation feels life-threatening and is perceived by the person as life-threatening. Um, and then the other piece is that there is a loss of control. Um, and, and this loss of control mixed with the fear that one's life is in danger is what creates the perception that an event is traumatic or a series of events are traumatic or an entire upbringing is traumatic. So, the, so in 
the case of residential, you're talking about kids who have had, you know, been taken away from biological parents for one reason or another, um, have lived in eight, nine, 10, 11 or more foster homes by the time they are 11 or 12 years old. Um, but maybe they're reaching 18 and they're aging out and they have no idea where they're going or who's going to take care of them. So you're talking about kids who from day one or day, whatever, you know, whenever the chaos started, there's been no predictability in their life and no um, understanding of a nurturing, caring, supportive environment. So you spent uh, seven years in mm-hmm. the residential treatment center with yep. these girls and mm-hmm. then and you learned all about trauma and got tons of education and then where did you go from there so then I had my own baby <laughs> and I so I left there and I went to um, public school and I was trying I was trying to have sort of a school adjustment counselor type of position, but um, I ended up as the administrator of a therapeutic high school program um, within a public school system. And I was there for about three years. Um, I really enjoyed the kids. I really enjoyed helping them and supporting them. Um, it's a tough type of program to run in a public school. So you know, there there were there are a lot of difficulties, but I what I got there was a again an understanding of the public school system, what works, what doesn't, and how we can best support these kids who have struggled, whether it's through their whole life or just in their adolescence or whatever, but are struggling to really be able to be in a general education environment or struggling to work well with their family or whatever the environment may be, um, but what they need to succeed in order to be able to be educated and, and sent out on a good footing. While I was there, I started thinking about where this was going and what my next steps were. And that's when I, after about three years, I opened my private practice um, and started seeing kids on an outpatient basis. I also had my second child and, you know, things got busy at home. And, and so it was it was just time for that next move. And so now I've been in private practice for eight years. My practice is in a fairly high middle class area, upper middle class area. Um, I see a lot of just so much anxiety, so much anxiety. And I've really been what I've been able to do is really work with these concepts in terms of developmental trauma and kind of bring it down a notch and and work them into just helping kids who are struggling and supporting kids who are struggling with whatever the issue um helping work with them around creating an environment that that is supportive and helpful to to their success right and kind of individualizing it for mm-hmm. each individual and how, yes. what that what that optimization looks yes. like and and I think what I've realized is that, you know, this program, you know, trauma is such a heavy word. And yet the concepts and the ideas behind it, behind the treatment of it really apply to all of us. Um, because developmentally, we all struggle with something. And those struggles that we have as we're developing continue to affect us into our adolescence and our adulthood. Um And so these techniques and these strategies that I learned through this trauma lens really can be applied to any of these struggles that people had 
in early childhood, whether they rise to that level or not. Yeah, whether they rise to the level of being considered trauma. Correct. In doing these podcasts and interviews with parents, a lot of the parents in the NICU do describe their experience Mm -hmm. in the newborn ICU as traumatic. They Mm -hmm. clearly have a sense that this is a life-threatening situation. Mm -hmm. And for many of the babies, it is a life-threatening situation. Mm -hmm. But even in situations where I'm not particularly worried about this baby, for parents, even even that is traumatic. And the same Mm -hmm. is true for 34-weekers. I have a family member that had their child at 34 weeks in the Mm -hmm. newborn ICU. And 34 weeks, average stay, 10 days, their baby did great, went home in 10 days. And they still continue to talk about how traumatic that experience was to them. So Mm -hmm. for NICU parents, I think it's not just traumatic for the infant who does have a life-threatening situation and has no control over what's happening to them because they're an infant, but it's also very traumatic for the parents Mm -hmm. because they view their child as in a life-threatening situation, and they don't have any control. It's very difficult to have control in the NICU. Can we talk a little bit about how the loss of control really mm-hmm. leads to this feeling of a situation being traumatic and why that is so important? A big piece of that, too, is this: the difference between how it's supposed to be and how it is. Okay. Um, and I think that's part of what creates that loss of control. Um, there's a lot of planning that goes in to the process of having your baby. You know, you're, you're the whole time you're pregnant, you're thinking about all of these things that you're going to do and the way that their birth is going to be and all of these ideas and pictures in your head. And when reality and your planning don't match, it creates the sense of, well, now what? what am I supposed to do now? This wasn't the plan. Um, and I think that that sense is very heavy for people and very, it does feel traumatic for people because it isn't how it was supposed to be. And we get stuck in thinking about how it's supposed to be instead of how, you know, dealing with what is. Yeah. I tell Um, parents in the NICU, it's okay to grieve mm -hmm. what it is you wanted and what it is you thought you were going to have. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it, that those are important things, right? Like mm-hmm. you have this vision of what's going to happen when you get pregnant and when you have a baby. And those are valid things that you want. And it's very valid to say, I didn't get those things. Right. And I think where people get stuck is mm-hmm. when they get stuck in, but I didn't get these things yes. that I wanted. Right. And so from a social work counseling standpoint, what are things that parents in the NICU can do as they're working through that that trauma mm-hmm. and that grief and this isn't how it was supposed to be? Mm-hmm. How can they work? What are things concretely that they can do to help them work through that to get them unstuck so that mm-hmm. they can see the things that are going well and be right. grateful for some of the things that are around? Not that they still can't grieve what's happening, but I don't want them to get stuck there. Right. Well, I think that message of like, both things can be true. So this is sort of the dialectical piece of my work is like two opposite things can be true at the same time. I work with people who get stuck on in that type of situation on finding starting with very small things that they can identify that they can be grateful for that are going well 
that are positive. And it doesn't, you know, we talk about that doesn't negate the things that are hard and bad and not what you wanted. It just also allows for these other things to be true at the same time. Because we know that that the more we are able to see the positive and, and find gratitude, the easier it becomes to do that. And the easier it becomes to not focus on the negative. And why is that exactly? The way that I think about it in trying to interpret the science is essentially that, you know, our brain, we used to think our brain was very static. And once we had neuropath, we have neuropathways that form the way we think. And once they were there, that was it. What we know now is that that's, that it's much more flexible. So if we are thinking negative or about what we've lost or in the, in that directions, right. In that direction, our brain develops these neural pathways that lead us there first where we have control. And again, this kind of goes back into that control piece is we don't have control over a lot of things that are happening, but we have control over how we choose to look at them and how we choose to think about them. And if we can come up with these positive thoughts, positive gratitudes, things to be happy about, things to be grateful for, things to look forward to, we're actually changing the neural pathways in our brain. And that leads us to a quicker positive response instead of immediately going to the negative. So the more that we're able to identify things that are good, the more our brain is willing to identify things that are good science behind it is that neural pathway process um and and the reality that we do have some control over that you know i have i work with teenagers so they'll tell me well i can't control how i'm thinking well yes you can control how you're thinking (laughs) it's hard and we don't always want to and it doesn't always feel like we can there's that beginning stage of this process which is a little bit fake it till you make it you know, that, so so because that's the other argument that I'll get is like, well, I can say three things that I'm grateful for, but that doesn't mean I'm really grateful for them. Or I can find three positive things, but I don't really care about them. And I'll say, I don't really care if you care about them. I just want you to pick them up, you know, and I'll tell kids, you can say, I'm grateful that my socks match today. And it can be that small. It just has to come from a place of positivity and gratefulness. Right. I wrote a um, blog post about how as parents surviving mm-hmm. parenthood during these times of COVID where you can't um, jump off your energy at Jump Street and you, your kids aren't <laughs> going to school and you're kind of surrounded by your kids all day. And, you know, that's it's very stressful and, and you're trying to work and you're just pulled in a million directions that surviving that parenting started with being kind to yourself. And yes. I go through kind of 15 things that we can do to Mm -hmm. be kind to ourselves, And the very last one, which is why I'm talking about this, and it goes back to your point, is I said that every day they needed to find two things that they were Mm -hmm. grateful for in their day. Um, And if you can't think of two things that you're grateful for in your day, open up your phone and go back and look at your pictures. It's a great strategy. And find two pictures that bring mm-hmm. you joy. It might be that you took a picture of the flower that was blooming as you walked out to your mailbox and mm-hmm. your day was so stressful that you forgot that you took that picture of that flower. But even something that small is mm-hmm. a place that you can start when you can't yes. actively think of something that you're grateful for. 
get out your phone. We live in a technologic age. You can mm-hmm. find two, just scroll down until you find two pictures where yep. you can find something positive and something good. Um, and it will put you in that direction of, of feeling yep. more gratitude. Absolutely. It's, you know, a little bit of a side tangent, but I, I think it's similar to on the other end, turning off the social media when you're too negatively triggered. I've also heard of people using social media and finding accounts to follow that are based on art or photography or some sort of creative outlet where they're just looking at beautiful things that people are posting. And even that, you know, changing your focus on social media from following, following all the, the scary stuff and the, and following some things that bring you joy. Correct. And I think you can pick and choose Mm -hmm. how often you want to engage with social media, which social media you want to engage in um, and and what you want that to to look like. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that can change over time, too. You can get rid of things and add them back and unfollow and then refollow. And I think that can be very helpful because as we are more isolated because we can't gather as much people Mm -hmm. are getting online but I think you really have to be careful about what you're engaging in online because the comparison is the thief of joy your baby was born at term my -hmm. baby was born preterm if I constantly am comparing to you my it's not gonna turn out well or my baby was born at 29 weeks and your baby was born at 29 weeks yes but my baby is not doing the same things that your baby is so again Mm -hmm. that comparison game is really really difficult yes so being very um thoughtful about your use of social media and and using it to support you and not to wear you down and not derail another source of stress right i had um before i had my uh, children, I had um, some miscarriages. And I remember completely getting off of social media mm-hmm. during that time, because being on there and seeing all of my friends who were pregnant and were mm-hmm. having babies while I could get pregnant, but could not stay pregnant mm-hmm. was it was every time it was like I got punched in the stomach. It was so, so difficult. But I ended up following some other things that actually were really beneficial that had to do with acupuncture and meditation and, Mm -hmm. and being grateful and other people struggling through infertility. And that was really beneficial at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I've unfollowed some of that and am now following other things. Right. So Mm -hmm. you really can use social media to tailor it to what your situation is. Yes. Yes. I think in terms of supporting and, and things that you can do, you know, in terms things of you that you can do when you're feeling stuck, you know, I think this, that is a place that we look to or that I look to. And, I, you know, in terms of what is your use and how are you? So, so first of all, we need to be finding small things that we're grateful for and small things that are positive in our day. And we need to look at our use of social media and technology and make sure it's supporting us and not, pulling us in. I've had people try to, you know, use social media in such a way to say like, who else has experienced this? Or what did people do in this situation? Not realizing that you're going to get a lot of different opinions. And some of them are going to be super helpful. And some of them are going to make you feel like you have 
made some really terrible decisions or you're just a terrible parent or a terrible. And so you have to be really careful with that stuff and what you're putting out there and what you're expecting to get back in. And I think sometimes in, you know, in, um, retuning and fine tuning the way that people are using social media, we've been able to get some of them unstuck because they're using it in a better way that stops pulling them back into the pit. Right. In a, in a more positive direction. As parents are going through the NICU and they're kind of dealing with this trauma, we've just talked about some of the things that they, that they can do to try to help them out. <laughs> I, I'm curious if there's some, if you can talk about how this trauma can manifest itself in <laughs> our parents. So one of the things that we see a lot of, particularly with the loss of control, is attempting to be in control, but overly so to the point that it becomes a problem. Um, so I, I am thinking of like in the NICU, you might have a, a parent who comes in and, you know, you're kind of talking about what's going to happen next. And they're sort of trying to, to run the show. You're like, you know, this is protocol and here's how we have to do. Well, I don't want to do it that way. Well, you know, so people might kind of come in and over assert. Um, so then what are good techniques for the nurses to be able to mm-hmm. communicate with people who are, I mean, we recognize that parents come in and try to overassert and try to gain control where they where they can. What are really good techniques for the people on the care care team to use with family members who are trying to maintain control and overassert? I think in those situations, um, less is more. <laughs> Um, I think a lot of times if that's happening, people are in crisis in terms of working with parents. I think, um, visual is always helpful finding out what the parent is, is actually needing in that moment, because sometimes parents are asserting control because they're trying to get a need met, but they can't quite figure out what that need is or how to get it met. So instead of asking for what they need, they just start barking orders because it's all they can figure out how to control. Um, So helping parents back up and say, okay, what is it that you need right now? How is it that we can help you? I think helps parents take a breath and refocus and realize how they're coming across. Okay. Oftentimes leads them to, I don't know what I need. You know what I need? I need my, my baby to not be here. Yes. Okay. That's valid. I get it. So that's what we're all trying to do is to need make it so that your baby doesn't need to be here. But sometimes we can't get, we can't get parents there without asking what it is they're looking for. And we kind of get stuck in that power struggle because they're coming at us with such force and such a desire for control. Um, And so our first reaction is to battle back. Like, well, that's not how we, that's not how we do things here. (laughs) Okay. You're just, it's like a power struggle with a child and a yes, no, yes, no, yes, no kind of pull. And so you got to step yourself out of that. Right. Because they're not going to be able to do it. I always, um, my approach is to try very hard not to get into power struggles with parents. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the ideal place to be is let's not Mm -hmm. be in a power struggle at all. Mm -hmm. Let's have a conversation and I give a little Mm -hmm. bit and you give a little bit. And then, and then because I'm willing to give a little bit in yes. certain situations, when I say no, mm-hmm. I mean no, right? And then mm-hmm. if I have built a rapport with parents, 
they know that when I say no, there's a reason for it, not just, well, I'm not going to do right. it that way because I don't want to. It's, well, there really is a reason. This brings up a really good point around relationship. Um, and I think in very stressful situations and, and what the trauma experts do talk about is that relationship is key. If people who are experiencing trauma trust you, then what you say is much easier for them to go along with. Um, because part of, you know, again, part of perceiving that a situation is traumatic is is perceiving that somehow along the way something went wrong. Somebody told you something and it didn't go that way. So how can I trust people? So if you focus on building that relationship with people first, then when you say things, they can accept them. Um, but if you, you know, so if, if you can't, if you try to jump in with um, structure and routine and orders before you build that relationship, people tend to push back much more because they, it, it's a trust thing. They're, they're looking out for themselves. They're trying to keep themselves safe. Safety is number one. Right. And I don't know if I can trust you. So I got to go with my gut, not your gut, even though you're the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or or the nurse or, or the nurse or the or respiratory whoever. therapist or yep. the person coming in to to give meds or or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. Relationship is absolute key with people who perceive that something is traumatic or that they're is a they're feeling like they are being traumatized. Right. So let's transition a little bit to um, as parents and babies are going home to talk about what parents can do after they leave the NICU and they've now been through this NICU stay mm -hmm. and they're going home and they still need to be able to process through this. Right. So what things can be helpful in that process? And then we'll start mm -hmm. to talk about as the kids get older what mm -hmm. we're kind of looking for in the kids but let's let's stick with the sure. parents because in that the in the NICU and right after they go home they're still dealing with an infant um and so we're really focusing on mom mm -hmm. and dad's emotional health in the NICU right. and in that first transition home so one thing that I have seen when I have patients who have experienced either NICU stays or medical trauma um, the parents talk about those first few months and they, and even moving forward and they talk about, they tend to be overly cautious, overly worried, over controlling with their kids, completely understandably. The health and safety of their child becomes the primary focus of every decision they make. And so I think one of the things in that transition to be looking at and careful about is allowing that experience to change how you see the world. So I see a lot of parents who hold their kids back in a sense from doing anything that could be dangerous or anything that might be scary. And the reality is, is that there are things that are gonna, they're going to have to do that are scary and dangerous the first couple times. And if they don't have that experience, they can't build off that experience for the next experience. And so they're holding their kids back in, an, in an, an intention of keeping them safe, but ulti ultimately making things harder for them in the long run. Really that process, that processing needs to start right off the bat. I think it's hard. One of the things we do talk about as well is that you can't process trauma while you're in the middle of trauma. 
So, you know, this still is part of the traumatic experience when you're bringing your baby home, who's now been in the NICU for weeks or months or however long. And now you're bringing this baby home and you have to take care of this baby now. And this is your job now. Um, And I think that to me, it feels like that's still part of the trauma. We've had moms describe, you know, the NICU was bad, but that first two weeks at home was harder because Mm -hmm. I still had my NICU experience. Now I'm not in the NICU. And so I'm starting to process that NICU experience. Mm -hmm. And I have lost all of the support people that I built up around me over the last two weeks to four months. Um, And I think the floor can sometimes come crashing out from underneath them once they go home. Having support people in place when they go home can be really important. And those support people can be parents and grandparents. Yes. Or they can be really good friends and coworkers. If, you know, some people have really good family support and other people don't. So it doesn't have to be a family member. It just has to be your community that supports you, your church community, your school community, whatever that community is. Mm -hmm. Having people that you trust and care about and who care about you in some way, you know, who you can go to to say, could you please come over here at some point so I can take a shower? <laughs> right. Um, or things because because you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, about self-care and taking care of yourself. When I talk to people about self-care, you know, they'll say to me, well, I don't have time to sit in a tub with candles and read a book. And I'm like, that's not self-care. That's luxury. Self-care is like a five-minute shower to make sure you're clean and can put on some new clothes. Like, that's self-care. Self-care is making sure you eat a couple of times a day, because if we don't eat, then we can't manage our emotions safely. You know, self-care is making sure that you sleep because if you don't sleep, you can't regulate your emotions safely. Um, So that's, I think another piece is, is thinking through the ways that the things that need to be done as a parent in order to be able to parent your child, sleeping well, eating well, getting outside, getting some physical activity, taking care of yourself, you know, in terms of hygiene and, and that piece, um, all of those things still need to happen. And having a plan for that, I think, goes a long way. Um, whether In any situation, I think we know that when we get ourselves up, get ourselves moving, get ourselves feeling productive, we do better, we feel better, we accomplish more. Yes, you get to lean into your feelings. You get to have days where you feel sad. You get to have days where you're just not doing it and it, and nothing can make you and that's okay. And you need to have days where you get up and you do things. And again, going back to that concept of baby steps, doing things might mean you got up, you took a shower, you fed your baby, and then you took a nap. But you did those three things. Right. And then maybe you make your bed. Maybe you fold some laundry, but those might be three different days and that's okay. Um, So I think then the other piece is is lowering the expectations. Um, I think a lot of us as parents, we think like, I got this. My house is going to be, you know, I'm going to have my house taken care of. My kids are going to be great. We have to lower our expectations of ourselves. And I know that sounds strange, but (laughs) when we hold our expectations so high that they're unmanageable, then we constantly feel like a failure. So if you're coming out of a traumatic experience where, quite frankly, a lot of people may already feel that way about what's 
happened and what they've just experienced. And then you set your expectations so high about how this is going to work when you get home and you can't meet those expectations, then you continue to feel like a failure and like you can't do this. Whereas if we go the other direction and say, hey, if I get up and make my bed today, I'm good. Well, now that's success and we can build off success. And again, going back to sort of the, the neural pathways, if we can feel success and build off success and continue to feel, set ourselves up to feel success, we're going to be more successful. I, th- I think it's very hard to do baby steps. And, mm-hmm. I, and I also think it's very hard to lower our expectations. Mm-hmm. I'll go back to social media again. I think that social media can be helpful in providing messages of lower your expectations. And I also think that social media can be difficult because you have the postpartum perfect mom who's posting yes. a picture that she hosted a party when her baby is two <laughs> weeks old. But on that social media post, she's not talking about how she had all these other people that were helping her do it. That That's an unrealistic expectation. So it's not helping us. Right. Exactly. Well, I always use, I have this really amazing picture of my family from one Halloween where like we all happen to be looking at the camera, we're all dressed up, we're in a theme and we're all smiling, but that's one moment. And if you had seen what happened before that picture was taken and immediately after that picture was taken, you realize that somehow the stars aligned and we just got that moment, but that's just a moment. And there was nothing aligning before it and there was nothing aligning after it. It was just a moment, but we can't see that. We see those pictures and we assume that that everything is perfect for these people. Yes. But baby steps are hard because they do require us to sometimes have things out of place and they require things to not be done and sometimes for things to be dirty for a little bit. And we sort of have this expectation of our lives that that isn't supposed to be the way that it is, again, because of those comparisons. But particularly when we're coming out of traumatic experiences that we're trying to process, our brain can only do so much. And processing trauma is hard. It's hard work. One of the things that Dr. Bessel van der Kolk talks a lot about is how um, trauma is not just stored in our brain and picture memory. It's, It's stored in every cell in our body. And it's why when we think about that memory or that situation, we can feel it. We can literally feel physically, emotionally, internally, like we are back in that situation. And until we can relax that response, it's going to happen every time. So our first job in processing all of what's happened is learning to feel the response, understand the response, and weaken the response. I am no longer in the NICU. We are home and I am in charge. Because again, there's a loss of control in the NICU and now you're back in charge and you have control, but now you have to be in charge. And that's scary too. Yeah. Yeah, that would be scary. As these kids that go home from the NICU, or let's say there's there's older children too, right? Mm-hmm. So two-year-olds who get admitted for respiratory distress, four-year-olds who get admitted mm-hmm. for respiratory distress, um, cancer chemotherapy patients, babies mm-hmm. and children with special needs who end up in and out of the hospital on a regular basis. And you have mm-hmm. kind of this more recurrent trauma. 
How does that affect the kids as they are developing? How, how does it affect them? And what kind of behaviors can we mm-hmm. imagine seeing or anticipate mm-hmm. looking for in our children mm-hmm. who have undergone some medical trauma? You look at the de- uh, developmental stage that the child is in when they experience the, the situation. Um, so for babies in the NICU, you know, there's when babies are born, they're sort of learning to eat and breathe and understand the world around them. When you're having a situation that is a medical trauma, you're fighting for your life. Safety and survival are the only things that are important in that moment. So all of the developmental tasks that you're supposed to be working on are pushed to the side. Um, you know, all of your energy in internally, physically, emotionally is taken, is, is taken up by the need to survive. So what we see is that as these kids get older, they have to go back and still master those developmental tasks. So what behaviors we see very much depend on what tasks they missed. Okay. What I noticed with kids who were infants when they had their medical situation is that they tend to be very controlling about their things and their space. And I often think about this as, well, you're an infant. You literally have no control over anything. And you had a surgery or you had an illness or maybe you stopped breathing. You had no control over any of this. And you, all you knew were people coming physically coming at your body. And so now as kids get older, what they want is that space. And they tend to be very controlling of their things and their body and their, you need to sit here and I need you here. And they want to tell everybody where to be and what to do to keep their bubble safe. When kids are older, you know, that control it tends to be a theme regardless, because again, trauma in and of, of itself is a, a loss of control. Um, but then sometimes we see it kind of go in a different direction where um, if kids are a little bit older, when they get into teenage years and, you know, they start to get to the stage where they're experimenting more with peers and substances and all of those things, we see kids can take one of two directions. They can either over control it and not want to be a part of any of it and pull themselves out of social situations and almost isolate themselves. Or we see them willing to take any risk because it's their choice and they get to do whatever they want. Um, You know, so it's really tricky to think about what these behaviors look like because it is so very dependent on the stage where the trauma happened and what skills and tasks they were supposed to be mastering at that time. And what stage of development is it coming out in? And what are the skills and tasks of that particular stage of development? You're sort of meshing the two. Right. So it um, really is when did it happen and, and where are you at? Yes. And it's going to be very individual depending on yes. the timing for everybody. The underlying theme tends to be control, lack of or over control. But yeah, it, it really is very individual for each kid. We see We see some kids who in have a hard time playing with other kids because they want to just rule the show. This is how we're going to play. And the kids are like, no, that's, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you don't want to do that, then I don't want to play with you. Okay. Well, 
Um, so friendships and relationships can be hard and decision-making can be hard. And, you know, I, I think as kids get older and start to understand more about what happened to them, there's a, there's another level of processing. It's almost like as adults, we sort of go through this experience and we process it. As kids, we go through this experience and every stage we hit, we reprocess it again because it has some sort of effect or impact in what we're supposed to be doing now. And we have to take it into account in, in thinking through how we're going to do this stage too. So from a parenting standpoint, mm -hmm. how can parents put in place structure mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is beneficial to children? Mm -hmm. So so this is where I always like to talk about um, routine, structure and routine with flexibility. <laughs> That they're both really important concepts. I think it plays into a lot with what's going on in the world right now. Yeah. Um, where we need to have a flow. We need to understand what's going to happen when we wake up in the morning. We can't wake up in the morning and be like, so where was the plan? We need to know the plan. There also has to be a level of flexibility where if the plan's not working, we need to pitch it and try something different. Um, you know, there are going to be days where school just isn't going to happen right now. Where I'm okay, we're not going to do school today. It's day off. Yay, everybody gets a day off. We're going to regroup and try again tomorrow. We have to be able to read our kids and we have to learn their language, essentially. What are their triggers? What are their cues? What are the red flags? So here's our structure. Here's how our family runs. And when we see these cues and these red flags, that's when we shut it down and do something different. It is, it is very much child-led and it can be really hard and really frustrating sometimes because again, as human beings, we like to be in control. As parents, we want to be in control. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't want my daughter to rub my deodorant in my carpet every day, no, which is what happened no. yesterday. Um, <laughs> no, you do not. <laughs> and we took a no school day and spent the day outside planting flowers this morning because yeah. we needed a reset. She needed a yes. reset. Yes. And we need to be able to do that. Um, I, I think what happens is, again, everybody wants to be in control. And so we start fighting and vying for control. And when we start fighting and vying for control, nobody wins. You know, structure is important. Routine is important. But particularly when kids have been through something that they perceive as traumatic, they're going to have a lot of cues and red flags and things that let you know that this isn't going to be the day. And that we're going to have to shift here. And when you see those things, you need to be attuned to them so that you can react and shift the plan and do something different. Go plant flowers for the morning. We're going to cuddle in bed and watch movies today, whatever it may be. But you need to be able to kind of react to that. Um, that attunement. So when we when we work with kids who have experienced developmental trauma, we, we sort of look at it's a, there's a pyramid and the bottom row of the pyramid is all about caregiver attunement, structure, safe environment. It has everything to do with you as parents or caregivers and the environment that's around this kid and actually nothing to do with the child themselves <laughs> in, in that sense. We have to set the stage to allow for those feelings and those emotions to come out and to, um, to give them space for those and also to contain enough that they know they're safe. So this is the routine. This is the structure. But if your feelings come up and you start to process something out of nowhere because that's going to happen, then we can shift back and here's what we do when you feel that way. Well, and I think that's helpful for 
not just children who are processing things, but also for adults. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, and it, it speaks to the level of expectation as well. Like some days we're going to have a ton of energy and we're going to be able to do all the things. And other days we're going to wake up and we need to be able to read ourselves as well. Like, today's not the day. It's not happening today. Yeah. Today's not the day. (laughs) I'm not going to today today. So, (laughs) and that's okay. And I think giving, having some grace with ourselves and and giving us that ourselves, that space is important because no one can be on all the time, especially when you're dealing with something that is uncertain or unpredictable or new or not what you expected or scary. We're not going to be on all the time. And the expectation that we will be is unfair. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, I think that's why I say people show up for the day and do the best they can do with the tools that they have for that day. Mm -hmm. And some days Mm -hmm. your bag is filled with tools. You have Mm -hmm. energy, you have gratitude, you're happy. And other days Mm -hmm. you don't. And you're just trying to get through the day. And that's that's just the way life is, whether you're in the NICU or you're parenting or you're dealing with COVID-19 or anything really. Right. And, and I think that, you know, it's something that we all kind of know, but we don't want to do. <laughs> we don't want to get, we, we want to be able to do it every day. Yeah, we of course. We don't want to give ourselves breaks, you know, but it's important. And taking care again, and I go back to sort of taking care of ourselves as parents in any of these situations, when, and particularly when we're dealing with something that, was traumatic and continues to be traumatic, taking care of ourselves isn't a luxury. It's imperative. And if we don't do it, we can't process what's happened and what is happening and what will happen. We can't. People talk a lot about the um, oxygen mask on the plane analogy. And it is that exactly. If we don't take care of us, we can't take care of them. If our cup isn't full, we have nothing to give them. Whatever analogy and visual works, you know, it's just this concept that if we don't do things for us, how can we expect our kids, ourselves to have energy for our kids or our kids to do the things that they need to do to take care of themselves? Right. And I think that that self-care piece, what we do to take care of ourselves, like you said earlier, it's not the luxuries. It's not the sit in a bubble bath for an hour. This, I mean, I couldn't tell you the last time I sat in a bubble bath for an hour with uh, my three children right now. Um, But even taking five minutes to walk down the hallway to get Mm -hmm. a cup of coffee from the coffee stand Mm -hmm. while you're in the NICU, that that is a mental break. That is taking care of yourself, taking Mm -hmm. the time to walk outside and take a breath of fresh air and, Mm -hmm. you know, and then come back in. Everybody can define for themselves what it looks like to take care of myself. For some people, taking care of myself, I mean, for me as well, when my son was in the hospital, taking care of myself was sitting in that room and not mm-hmm. leaving. Um, yep. Me leaving was not taking care of myself, but mm-hmm. me feeding myself and getting some dry shampoo and yep. putting on some music on my phone to take a deep breath and mm-hmm. those types of things, those were taking care of myself. So I was right. taking care of myself, but it you know, that those definitions change depending on your circumstances. Right. And I also think that we have this, we have an aversion to doing things for ourselves (laughs) Um, and, and doing things that we know from 
years and years and years that work for people. Um, things like putting music on, listening to a meditation. You know, I can't tell you the number of times I've said to parents, why don't you just go, you know, this is, this is a hard moment. Give, he is fine. He is safe. Go in your room, put on your headphones, listen to something that's going to ground you and bring you back into reality and the present, and then go back and handle it. But there's this like, I can't do that. That's, you know, that's not going to work. That's not going to help me. I can't meditate. That's not good for me. Hold up. It's not about meditating. It's a, it's about taking a breath and taking a pause so that you're not emotionally reacting, but at, you're thoughtfully responding. Yeah. Emotional reaction versus thoughtful response. That's huge. And that's self-care because we don't feel good about ourselves when we emotionally respond no. or emotionally react. Yeah. And, and so self-care is giving ourselves that minute in whatever way that looks like in order to be able to thoughtfully respond so that we can feel good about our parenting. Um, and, and, you know, and I also think things like meditation, taking a walk, having a cup of tea, you know, things that seem like not a big deal, people tend to kind of dismiss, like, that's not going to help me. Yeah. Minimize the importance. Yeah. Have you ever tried? What would it look like if at three o'clock you just shut everything down and had a cup of tea, regardless of what was going on? What would that look like? Well, my kids would be yelling and screaming and it wouldn't be relaxing. Well, what if you went into a room and shut the door? And a lot of times there's this like resistance of like, well, bad things would happen, but I don't know what that would be. Well, I wonder what it would look like if you tried it. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder how bad it is if your kids are yelling and screaming on the other side of the door. If, you're, if your primary goal at that moment is to sit and drink tea. Right. I wonder if you put your headphones in, if you could even hear them. Yeah. Well, what if somebody gets hurt? Then somebody gets hurt and you deal with it. But if you've had a cup of tea in five minutes to yourself, you're probably going to deal with it a little bit better. And somebody might get hurt anyway if you don't do that. I think it's a hard concept for people because we feel like we have to keep doing and fixing and helping and and coordinating. And I know it in myself. You know, I can't walk through the room when they're playing and not have something to say about how they're playing. Right. <laughs> or how they're talking to each other. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think... The world goes on without us, too, right? So yes. my kids run around and play, even if I'm not there telling them how and mm -hmm. what to do it. They may make a bigger mess. They may mm -hmm. rub deodorant into the carpet. They may <laughs> write the alphabet on a windowsill. Like, there's all sorts of things that they might do. But yeah. sometimes when I am, you know, doing my thing and taking a break, they play wonderfully together. Yes. And they don't destroy everything mm -hmm. and they do figure out how to get along when they both mm -hmm. want the bouncy ball and they negotiate yep. and figure it out on their own. And, and those are important space. skills. Yeah. Yes. They need that space. Absolutely. And so, I, you know, and again, it all comes back to we're so busy trying to figure out how to control everything that we don't take care of ourselves, and we create problems sometimes where there aren't any. When I think about parents who are processing through medical trauma, the intent is good. The intent is right. The intent is to keep their child safe and healthy and happy. And it's sometimes hard for them to step out and see that what they're doing is actually the opposite of that, the way and, that they're implementing that. Right. And I think that there's, 
you know, in those first six weeks that you take your preemie home and it's cold and flu season, mm-hmm. yes, those instincts to protect and not let them yep. do anything are very, very powerful. But at some yep. point, you have to let them go and right. let them explore. And that's that's right. parenting in general, too, right? Yep. Like, I have I some friends that- who no matter what the kid does, don't, don't do that. You might get hurt. Don't do that. You might get hurt. And I'm the opposite. I'm like, eh, you know, walk on the wall. "Eh, It's fine if you, yeah, whatever. Um, but so it's, it's not just with preemie parents and not just with parents of kids that have gone through medical trauma. This is relevant for all parents. You have to let your kids take risks. They have to be able to learn for themselves. I think of, so my kids are three years apart and I very clearly remember this one afternoon at the park (laughs) where I was helping my then four and a half year old climb some structure. And somebody said to me, excuse me, ma'am, I think that's your child over there. And I turned around and my one and a half year old was up on something even higher all by himself. You know, it's like, whoa. You're like, oh, actually you could do that. that, Then you can probably do this one by yourself. And second of all, I should probably go get him. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, I I think it, it, for me in that moment, it really put a visual to this idea of what happens when we over control versus what happens when we allow them to explore and learn on their own. Our kids are going to look to us to tell them if something is safe or not. So in terms of parenting a child who's been through a medical trauma, our kids are gonna look to us to tell them if things are safe. So if we're constantly framing everything for them through the lens of their medical issue, then they're not going to feel safe. And so at some point as parents, we need to stop doing, we need to figure out our own reaction to the traumatic experience, whether that be just through developing a routine and having the experiences or whether it be, you know, through finding a therapist to help work through those feelings. Um, We need to do that. And that's really important. And it's not luxury. It is self-care, but it's not luxury self-care. It's important, immediate, necessary self-care in order to be able to work our kids through without that lens all the time. Yeah. Because if that's their lens all the time, it's always going to affect them. But if we can help them make meaning out of what happened and make meaning out of the situation they were in and understand it and put it in the context and the box where it belongs, then they can live their life without it and without it becoming a a, a traumatic experience. Do you have any favorite um, resources or books that you tend to direct people towards as they are kind of processing through in order to then have a good lens for their kids? Mm-hmm. So um, Bessel van der Kolk wrote a book called The Body Keeps Score about trauma. It's a very difficult book to read, okay. but it is one that I do suggest people who have had traumatic experiences read because it very much explains um, how our entire being processes trauma. Okay. And therefore why there are certain um why there are certain things that we have to do in order to process it in terms of being physical. And um, he, he really advocates for a lot of um, movement therapies and yoga and drama and things like that, where we're not just sitting and talking about our trauma, but we're actually acting it out and experiencing it because it helps our, all the cells in our body process it, not just our brain. Okay. Um, So that is one, like I said, it's, it can be very difficult to read. Okay. Um, 
but it's an important one. Uh, and then in terms of parenting lens type reading, um, Mona, oh, what's the her last name? Mona Delahunt is a woman that I refer. I send people. She's got a Facebook page and several books, and um, she's just got a lens on parenting that I think um, makes a lot of sense, regardless of what you've been through. Okay. Um, so those are kind of two of my go-to. Um, there's also some situation dependent uh, resources um, for some kids who we see right off the bat are highly sensitive. Um, there is, there's a book called the highly sensitive child. I've read that. And yes. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, it is absolutely fantastic. I think for a lot of kids, particularly anxious kids, it explains a lot. <laughs> um, so that is, that is one that I will often recommend. And then with kids who are sort of rigid and over controlling, I use um, The Explosive Child by Ross Green. Um, and his, it was Ross Green and Stuart Avalon developed collaborative problem solving. Um, and so I will direct parents to read about collaborative problem solving. This is a technique in parenting where instead of giving all the rules, we really work with our old, particularly older kids around creating the rules together, getting their buy-in. Um, and it tends to work better for kids who are very rigid and need, feel the need to control everything. Right. Um, there's, there's a couple of, well, there's one website called Think Kids and another website called Lives in the Balance. Think Kids is Stuart Avalon and Lives in the Balance is Ross Green. Um, but they're really talking about the same concepts. Awesome. I think those will be, those will be good resources for, for our families. Great. What did I not ask about today that oh, I don't know. you, do you have any last uh, burning things that you want to tell our, our listeners? Well, I think what I will, what I will say um, in terms of what we're all living through right now, I think a lot of what we've talked about today applies to this situation as well. But I think one of the things that keeps coming up starts off with this sense of structure versus flexibility and the idea that quite honestly, right now, what's most important for our kids is their mental wellness and that we're taking care of their emotions and their responses and their reactions and their feelings. Um, and that we're answering questions because I also think whether we're talking about kids who experience medical trauma as they get older or whether we're talking about this COVID-19 situation right now, kids have questions. And if we don't, we tend to shy away sometimes from answering the tough questions because we don't know how to explain it or we don't know what to say or we don't want to give them too much information that they can't handle. But the reality is if kids have questions and we don't answer them, they make up their own answers. And sometimes that's more dangerous than the real answer. Than the real answer. Yeah, that makes um, a lot of sense. So I think that, you know, wrapping all of this together, there's a sense right now that what we really need to focus on is their mental wellness. We need to give them information. We need to help them understand. We need to help them process the feelings and not be afraid of big feelings because when we're afraid of big feelings, they stuff big feelings and then they act big. Um, and if we can do that and not worry about the other stuff right now, we'll come out of this. Okay. 
but the more control we try to exert, particularly there's a lot of, well, we need to do this schoolwork and we need to get this done. And your teacher assigns, I keep saying academic, they'll catch them up next year. Academics will get caught up. But if we can't help them see this and make meaning out of what's happening right now and manage their feelings around it, the academics don't matter. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being willing to spend this hour with me and chat with me. I just really enjoyed it. And I think that the that our listeners will get a, a ton out of this. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. You keep saying it, Walt. No.